1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: Good morning. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me today, I'm going to have Leanne Murray. She is also a nurse practitioner, but all the way from Hancock County with Hancock Women's Center. And we are going to be talking about ovarian cancer today. So September is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, and we want to highlight that. If you have a question or a comment, you can give us a call. Our number is one eight seven seven MPB ring it's 18776727464 you can send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org we'll be back after the news
1: this is an MPB think radio podcast.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, Joining me today, I have Lee Ann Murray. She is also a nurse practitioner, and we are going to be talking about ovarian cancer today. September is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, and so I did not want to let this month go by without doing a show about ovarian cancer, because um, we've not done one before. So this is my this is our first show on on ovarian cancer. If you have a question or a comment, maybe you are an ovarian cancer survivor, or you know someone um, in your family who is going through that particular diagnosis. We would love to hear your story or be able to offer some support to you today. Our number is one mpb ring It's one As always, you can just send me an email if you prefer. That is fit at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Leanne. Good morning, Josie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for driving up because you do not live in the metro area. So she traveled a little ways to get to us today. Tell us um, a little bit about you and where you're from, where you practice. So I am from Bay St.
3: Louis and I was born and raised there. And I went to uh, Mississippi University for Women for my undergraduate. And then I went to the University of Southern Mississippi for my graduate studies and became a family nurse practitioner. Um, I've worked in women's health care for about eight years, and uh, whenever I finished school, I was offered a job at an OBGYN clinic, and I've worked there for the past two years. Um, we have an amazing team, and... We are dedicated
2: to providing women's health care services to our community. Yeah. So you had a good little bit of a drive up this morning. So early on a Monday morning. So we want to take the opportunity to uh, pick her brain with some questions about women's health and ovarian cancer. Um, So you work at Hancock Women's Center, correct? Correct. Now, tell us um, a little bit about Hancock Women's Center. What all you guys do there? So we have... um,
3: Two doctors and another nurse practitioner and myself, and we treat women from adolescence on, and we do a lot of preventative services, including annual exams, and we take care of pregnant women, um, pretty much women throughout the spectrum of life, and pretty much any obstetric or gyneco- gynecological complaint
2: um, or issue we handle at our clinic. Yeah. So while we're focusing on, on ovarian cancer today, if you have a women's health question in general, we're happy to take that as well. All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, why we have a month for ovarian cancer, right? So why why does uh, nationally we get a whole month for ovarian cancer? Well, ovarian cancer is the um, most deadliest
3: of all of the gynecological cancers. And unfortunately it's one of the most difficult ones to diagnose. So I feel like awareness um, about signs and symptoms and risk factors can help empower women to uh, seek, you know,
2: treatment for uh, workup for ovarian cancer sooner. Yeah. So it's very important. You mentioned it's the, it's the deadliest, yes. right, of all the gynecological cancers. Um, and I would imagine that that's because it's often not found quickly. Right? Yes. And uh, about 70% of the time, ovarian cancer is diagnosed in stages 3 and 4. Talk to me a little bit about stages. Like what when we talk about cancer and we talk about different stages, what does that mean? So, um it 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 describes where how advanced the cancer is.
3: So, a stage 1 cancer is localized to just the ovary usually. Uh there are certain subsets of stage 1, uh, you know, that can vary and then stage 2 is um cancer that is still in just the pelvis. Uh, pelvic area. And stage three is cancer that has spread to the abdominal cavity and stage four is greater than that.
2: Um, So it's just how advanced the cancer is. Right. And that's pretty common with with most solid tumor cancers. You know, the the more contained it is, um, the lower the stage. And then when we get into stage 3 and 4s that usually means it's it's grown beyond where it started and is affecting maybe some organ systems that are not even related to in this case the female reproductive tract it may have spread other places, bone, lung, brain, those types of things. Right, exactly. Is there um, a most common site for metastasis for ovarian cancer?
3: So usually in the pelvic area, um, and then a lot of those cancers tend to like each other, so breast, uterine, colon, um
2: you know tend to kind of hang out together okay. that 's not a club that anybody wants no. to, to be a part of so how um is it common is ovarian cancer common so the average
3: woman woman with uh, no family history has a lifetime risk of one in seventy eight one in seventy eight women will get ovarian cancer one in one hundred and eight will die. From mm-hmm. ovarian cancer, um, and those are the statistics for the United States. Mm-hmm. So annually, about twenty-three thousand women are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and unfortunately, about fourteen thousand uh, die from ovarian wow. cancer each year. Well,
2: those are not those are not good numbers. Um, you know, I would imagine if it's caught early, then the survival rate is considerably better than that. Yes. Usually um,
3: the earlier stages, one, sometimes two, you know, it definitely tends to be better. Um, The five-year survival rate currently for ovarian cancer is about 45%.
2: Okay. So, yeah. So it's definitely one of those where we want to encourage frequent testing and screening and and looking out for those different types of things. Because while you said Mm 23,000 doesn't sound like a huge number when you look at then the proportion of those women who died from that right. diagnosis so that's a significant number of, of women, somebody's mama, somebody's sister right. somebody's aunt, somebody's something um, something, somebody's something that is is affected by that and just like with any cancer diagnosis it doesn't just affect the individual that has cancer It the ripples of that spread out into the family, the friends the community that that individual is part of so super important to be covering this topic and happy to have you here to do that with us today. So So are there any symptoms of ovarian cancer? So
3: unfortunately, the symptoms are very vague. Um, And usually when symptoms present, it's at an advanced stage. Um, So some common symptoms would be abdominal bloating, um, abdominal distension, changes in urinary habits, like uh, increased frequency, changes in bowel habits, constipation. Um, Sometimes vaginal discharge, that's not normal for a patient. Um, Vaginal bleeding in a postmenopausal patient is a significant Mm -hmm. symptom uh feeling full early is another symptom that we see, uh, abdominal pain and pelvic pain, lower back pain. So anytime you have any of these symptoms, while they can mimic other conditions, right. definitely warrants a trip to the doctor. Right. And a lot of times what happens with these women, like we were talking about before mm-hmm. the show, is that uh, these we're so busy taking care of everybody else in our family that we put ourselves on the back burner. And so if you were, you know, to, to go to the, to your provider to discuss these symptoms, we may be able to catch something sooner
2: rather than later. Yeah. And you know, the symptoms that you mentioned were quite, quite vague, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, and we never want to be alarmists, right? right? Like we can't, you know, run to the healthcare provider every time, you know, something is, is different, but you know bloating I mean who hasn't felt bloated from time to time you know but consistently you know if it's bloating that's not going away if you know you've popped some tums or you know something like that or you know some gas x and you're still feeling that bloating Um, I've had women tell me they noticed like their their pants weren't fitting the same not even that they couldn't button their pants it was just tight and Different areas than um, than they were used to, um, and, and I think yeah. consistency is key. Like you were talking about, if these are
3: symptoms that you're having and they go away, you know, probably nothing to worry about. But if there's symptoms that you're having and it's persisting for a few weeks, mm-hmm. definitely warrants a Going trip and talking. Yeah, I mean,
2: just talking with us and and you know, keep a little log book, you know, of different symptoms that you're worried about. You mentioned kind of changes in bowel habits and. While that can be a symptom of ovarian cancer, it can be a symptom of colon cancer as well. So any change in bowel habits that persist need to be evaluated um, by at least primary care provider and then if needed referring out to these specialty cares and so when we say change in bowel habits you know think about if you've never been constipated before or only you know occasionally constipated right and you're suddenly finding yourself routinely constipated or having to strain to go that's something that needs to be checked out because something's keeping that poop from, exactly. from coming on down there and that you know that can be a mass in their pressing. Thing on um, that particular area. One you didn't mention, but when I thought about mass pressing, made me think about um, more frequent urinary tract infections. Mm-hmm. Because even if you've got a mass in the belly, um, then sometimes the bladder doesn't empty as well. Mm-hmm. And so you'll get kind of recurrent urinary tract infections. And so, I mean, there are women that have recurrent UTIs very frequently, but this would be somebody who doesn't, that's not normally their pattern and right. then now we've got you know one after another on urinary tract infections those are things that need to be um, paid attention to and looked at a little bit further instead of just i need some more antibiotics or let me pop some more of these azo or something like right. that you know we've got to evaluate those things and make sure that nothing else is going on in there all right we're going to take the first break of the hour when we come back i want to talk about you know what what, what's going to happen when somebody comes to the doctor's office to maybe be screened for ovarian cancer? Right. Sounds good. So, if you've got a question or a comment, now is a perfect time to give us a call. We've got open lines, and our number is one eight seven seven MPB Ring. It's 1 877 672 7464. We'll be back after the break.
1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC. joining me today, I have another nurse practitioner, Leanne Murray, but she is from Hancock Women's Center in Bay St. Louis. And we are highlighting ovarian cancer today. September is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, and we want to make sure that we are spreading the information about signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer, which we mentioned before the break as well as how we get checked for ovarian cancer and really any kind of gynecological cancers in general and then what to do maybe after that diagnosis um, and to prevent reoccurrences. So um, if you've got a question or a comment, we'd love to hear those. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, And my email is fit at mpbonline. Org. All right, we talked about um, signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer, which, if you're just catching us, are very vague. Um, things like bloating and abdominal distension, change in bowel habits, those types of things. Um, remember that this show will get turned into a podcast, and you can always check that out if you missed anything from the beginning of the show so let's say maybe we have some of those symptoms and we um, are going into the doctor's office um, or we don't have any symptoms at all and we're just going for regular well woman exam right how do we get checked for ovarian cancer so unfortunately there is no screening
3: for an o- for ovarian cancer So we do a pelvic exam at your annual exam, and if you're having any symptoms or if we feel any pelvic masses or through your history, if we identify that you are at a higher risk for an ovarian cancer, then we may do some more studies. Um, So if you have a pelvic mass and we suspect that you might have an ovarian cancer or some kind of gynecological cancer, the next step after the pelvic exam is a transvaginal ultrasound. Usually the transvaginal ultrasound can show us Features that are suspicious for ovarian cancer. From that point, we would do some blood work, specifically a tumor marker called CA-125. Uh, it's not specific for ovarian cancer, but it's kind of the best thing that we have. Mm. And then from that point, if we uh, are thinking ovarian cancer, we'll do CTs of the abdomen and pelvis. And then a referral to GYN Oncology, who's a specialist um, who has uh, a fellowship in oncology and that would be who would do the surgery for diagnosis, staging, and hopefully removal.
2: Right. And so I think that's important for folks to realize that, you know, if you're having symptoms and you go in, you're, you're not going to walk out with a diagnosis that day. Right. So you mentioned that pelvic exam, um, which would be um, where the practitioner, the physician, the nurse practitioner, physician assistant, whoever actually has to insert their fingers into your vaginal canal manual exam exam and kind of press around to see if they feel anything and then if they do that still doesn't necessarily mean it's ovarian cancer or any type of cancer in general right it could be benign
3: like a a uterine fibroid or a functioning simple ovarian cyst or something not as worrisome as an ovarian cancer and like we talked about it's very rare less than two percent you know, chance of developing this in in your lifetime, but
2: because it's so So deadly, we've got to evaluate further. Yes. So um, that next step would be kind of that transvaginal ultrasound you mentioned. And so if you're thinking, what's a transvaginal ultrasound? Well, it's if you've ever been pregnant and early pregnant, um, it's kind of the first ultrasound that you got. It's actually where the ultrasound wand is inserted into the vagina um, for evaluation. I know when I was first pregnant and I mean, I was a nurse. But I just didn't think about it. Like I went in for my first ultrasound and just hopped up on the table and she's like, (laughs) you got to take off your pants. (laughs) And I was like, for why? You know, because you think about um, kind of the TV image you see of ladies getting ultrasounds. Just popping it on the abdomen. Just popping Mm -hmm. it on there. That's not the type of ultrasound (laughs) we're talking about. So don't let that kind of throw you for a loop either. Um, And then based off of that... That further testing, so maybe that CT scan that's going to let you look and see if it's you know, moved anywhere else, if it's attached to anything, those types of things, and then that specialist that's in gyn oncology or gynecological oncology that spe- specializes in cancers just of the female reproductive tract. There, yeah. so it's it's going to be a little bit of a lengthy process um, to diagnosis, but um, we got to figure it out. We got to figure out what's going on if it's benign, like you mentioned, which is. Um, not cancerous right but it still may be something that needs to come out right
3: or or be worked up further right yeah
2: you know we were talking um before the show and i went in um for some issues i was having and they did the the ultrasound and found a growth on my ovary and you know immediately that's where my brain went i was like oh my god i have i have ovarian cancer like you know what like what am I going to do? I got two little kids, you know, all these things started going in my head. And I mean, luckily it it did not turn out to be that, but we took it out. You know, we we went in and and got that sucker and took it out and, you know, biopsied it to, to see what it was. And it was benign, but it was causing me symptoms, you know, so it was still something that needed to be, be removed, even though it wasn't, it wasn't cancerous there. So we talked about that pelvic exam. Tell, um, tell our listeners the difference between a pelvic exam and a pap smear. Because I think women oh, get this confused is a good about one. that.
3: Yeah. Yes. And if you don't take away anything else from the show. <laughs> this, this is, is it. This Write it down. It. So a pap smear is a screening tool that we use for cervical cancer only cervical cancer. It does not screen for uterine, ovarian, vaginal, vulvar cancer, only screens for cervical cancer. Um, And the PAP guidelines have changed depending on your age. Usually it's every three to five years now, depending on your age. Mm -hmm. Um, So now, but we do recommend that you still get your pelvic exam, which is what we were just talking about every year. And the reason that we do that is because cancer's like uterine, ovarian, vaginal, vulva can occur and they're not detected by the pap smear. So we use our eyes and our hands and our mm-hmm. bimanual exams mm-hmm. to assess for these things. And then just that's a great appointment to have where we do a breast exam. And then we talk to you about conditions that you might not feel comfortable talking to whoever does your primary or, right. an, you know, internal medicine. So uh, it's
2: a you should do it every year. Right. And I'm glad you said things you might not feel comfortable talking about with your with your primary care provider. Um, I'm sure there is not anything that people can say to you guys that you haven't heard before. Like, so you anything. shouldn't <laughs> you should see her face. <laughs> her eyeballs were like, there's nothing you can say to me that's going to shock me. Um, you know, I'm, anytime we're talking about people's private areas. They tend to be um, embarrassed about talking about things. Um, What I try and tell people when they come to see me is like, I've been doing this a long time. Like I have seen it all. I have touched it all. I have heard it all. There's nothing you can say to me that's going to make me judge you or think poorly of you or that's going to gross me out. So but you got to tell us, you know, we cannot fix it if you do not tell us about it. And so that may be something subtle, you know, like a change in vaginal discharge Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, can really herald significant. Medical issues that we need to know about, but can be something that's kind of I don't want to talk about that. And for know? some t-
3: for some women, when they think back after diagnosis, it was something as subtle as a change in a vaginal discharge or a you know more painful intercourse. That's what or, I was going to say. You know, yeah. th- things like that that they don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about, but it may have been an early symptom
2: of something more more significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially that painful intercourse. You know, um, that can be because there's a mass in there. Right. You know, that's being pushed around during during. So always, always share that information with your healthcare provider. provider. Um, and you're not going to shock your primary either. I mean, they've, no. they've heard it all, too. But, you know, whoever you're comfortable with having that conversation, it's important to have that. So you mentioned um, several different kinds of gynecological cancer. So, of course, ovarian is what we've been focusing on. Um, uh, but you mentioned the pap smear as a screen for cervical cancer. What's your cervix? So your cervix is located at the bottom of your uterus
3: and, um, it is, it's like a little donut shaped (laughs) thing. (laughs) It's it's where babies come out of. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, approximately, um, 30,000 women are diagnosed with cervical cancer each year. Uh, and so the pap smear is a wonderful screening tool. And we, many types of cervical cancer are caused from human papillomavirus, and there's now a vaccine Mm -hmm. for that, which is wonderful. And we've seen um, a significant decrease in our rates of cervical cancer. Also, vaginal and vulvar cancers can be from the HPV virus as well. So, Mm -hmm. decreased rates for those. And then for men,
2: uh, decreased rates in uh, penile and anal cancers. Right, which is very, very, very important. So, that's the cervix. You've got that kind of cervical, that type of cancer. You can also have uterine cancer as well which would just be cancer actually into the uterus um some of the symptoms of that really the one that that makes my spidey senses tingle is when I have a lady who maybe is um, postmenopausal, so she's already gone through menopause and then starts bleeding yes. again you know um and I'm sure a lot of times they're like you got to be kidding me. Like, I right. thought I was done with this, you right. know, and it comes back. Um, and it's usually about six months, right? Like, if they've not been bleeding, uh, if they've been um, menopausal, not having a period for about six months, and then suddenly it comes back, right? Yes. That's a warning sign. Yes.
3: So, you know, the definition of menopause is no vaginal bleeding for 12 months. Um, and then once we start to have that, then we do get suspicious. And uh, endometrial cancer, which endometrium is the lining of the uterus, uh, is the most common type of uterine cancer. And about uh, 50,000 women are diagnosed each year. It's it's a significant one. But usually, you know, if caught
2: early, mm-hmm. survival is very good. Right. So. And so... Um, Of course treatment for our initial treatment for the uterine cancer would likely be a hysterectomy. Correct. correct? Um, but, a, but cervical cancer is not necessarily a hysterectomy depending no. on the stage.
3: Right. And usually we catch it early thanks to the pap and then we do, you know, biopsy in the office and sometimes the biopsy is the treatment. Mm. Um, and then, you know, other procedures can happen, but once it gets more advanced then a hysterectomy and chemotherapy um,
2: will be warranted at that point. Yeah. Awesome. All right. We're going to talk um, a little bit more about a couple of those other different different kinds of cancers in particular vulvar cancer because I don't think that that's um, highlighted enough either but we're going to take um, our second break of the hour now's a great time if you have a question for Leanne or for myself about anything related to women's health or ovarian cancer um, now's a great time to give us a call that number is one mpb ring it's one 672 we'll be back after the break
1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. Joining me in the studio today is Leanne Murray. She is a family nurse practitioner at Hancock Women's Center. And we have been talking women's health, but in specific ovarian cancer today. Um, we'd love to hear from you if you have a question or a comment about ovarian cancer, women's health in general. That number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or if you can't get to a phone right now and you'd like to send us an email, that works too. Our email is fit at mpbonline.org. All right, we're going to go on over to the phone lines and talk with Casey. Good morning, Casey. Good morning. How are you all? We're good. How are and you? Hi, Casey.
0: I'm very well. Very well.
2: What can we do for you today?
0: So, I have a question concerning the HPV vaccine. Okay. Can you tell me uh, about how long it's been around and and have they noticed any side effects thus far? Perfect. For the vaccine.
2: Yeah. So, I don't know the exact amount of time it's been on the market i know that i have been practicing for 13 years and it was there when i started as a new nurse practitioner so more than 10 years um the vaccine of course the more common side effects are going to be that as with any vaccine so localized pain at the injection site maybe a knot there as well low-grade fever muscle aches chills those kinds of things and then as with any vaccine, there's the potential to have, um, you know, allergic reactions to the components in there and have issues with that. Um, Leanne, do you have more specific stuff about that? So the HPV vaccine has been around in the United
3: States since 2006. And like Josie was saying, the most common reactions are that with any vaccine, like localized injection site reactions and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh and now the the biggest change is that it's indicated for boys and as well as girls starting at age eleven, and it recently has been approved um, for an age extension up to age forty five for high risk patients. I saw patients. that the other
2: day. It's, With- it's awesome. Well, when, when it came out, or, or when I first became aware of it, of course, was when I first started practicing. And I was kind of past that that age group to be able to to get it. Um, but I saw that it's been extended, and then also for the male patients as well um, for HPV. So that is that there, Casey. Thank you for that question, and we appreciate you asking it.
3: Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Casey. All right.
2: Bye-bye. Bye. Um, talk for me a, l- a minute about HPV. Like, what is what is HPV? So
3: HPV is a human papillomavirus, and it's responsible for, uh, for cervical cancer, for genital warts, for um, anal penile cancer. And it's a virus that is sexually associated. Um, and so uh, the majority of cervical cancers, like we talked about, are from HPV. Um, so we, the Gardasil vaccine, the HPV vaccine, it protects you from the high risk strains of HPV that are associated with cervical cancer. There's different strains. And so certain strains are affiliated with genital
2: warts mm-hmm. and then other strains are affiliated with cancer. Right. There's, I mean, there's over a hundred different yes. strains of, of HPV, but through, of course, laboratory testing, there are the the high risk ones that we know are more likely to cause a cervical cancer. And that's what. HPV vaccine is protecting against. Yes. All right. So we're going to go over to Oxford and talk with Mary. Hello, Mary. Hey, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What can we do for you?
1: I
0: was recently diagnosed with lichen sclerosis, and I have read that um, individuals with lichen sclerosis are at higher risk for vulva cancer, but I can't find any statistics on it, and you know, my doctor tells me stay off the internet. So. <laughs> 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 you know, we all diagnose ourselves.
2: So. I well, know,
0: a legitimate diagnosis. And I was just wondering if you have anything statistically on um, on that.
2: Okay. Um, off the top of my head, I don't know the actual statistics between that. I, you know, I have of course heard the connection between lichen sclerosis and increased risk of, of vulvar um, cancer. I don't know the exact numbers. I will be happy to dig a little bit deeper for that on you to keep you from um, falling down the the Google trap of right. of <laughs> oh gosh, what you know you come up with that you have all these other different things. So right. I agree with your doctor. Don't fall down that rabbit <laughs> yes. hole. Um, so I'll be happy to um, pull some some data for you on that and some statistics on that and send them to you um, okay. will you send me an email sure. fit at org, okay. and they will send that to me and I'll get you some really good um, information on that and I'll I'll follow up with our GYN team at UMC as well and see what we can get for you okay thank you so much you're so very welcome thank you for giving us a call today and they, and and just to put Mary's mind a little bit at ease, yeah.
3: uh, vaginal and vulvar cancers um, make up six to nine percent of all gynecological cancers. So it is not a not a very common not thing. Not a very common thing. Um, it's, I think, like 1,900 cases a year on average are diagnosed. Um, and usually what will happen is is that, you know, if we have a patient who has lichen sclerosis, um, you know, we do treatment, and there should be improvement. If there's not improvement after a certain amount of time, we do recommend a biopsy. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, maybe, you know, uh, there are, I don't have the exact numbers, mm-hmm. but a lot of times I think patients might just not follow up um, or might not get the biopsy that is needed gotcha. um, just because it's lichen sclerosis and it might mm. really be a vaginal or, or vulvar
2: cancer. Right, right. So, kind of a, a missed diagnosis yes. there. All right. So thank you for your call, Mary, and I'll be happy to send that stuff out to you. All right. So those were some great questions. So for f- listeners who might not know when we're talking about vulvar cancer, what what part of the body is that?
3: <laughs> so this is, it is in the vagina and we have um, some lips down mm-hmm. there and we have some some fleshy skin down there and these are all places where we can have cancer. Um, and so whenever we do our pelvic exam, we do an, a thorough external genitalia exam um, looking at the skin and the labia um, and then inside of the vagina um, as well. Even if you've had a hysterectomy this is an important reason to still have a pelvic exam annually because you can have vaginal involve our cancers. So we do um, an exam of the
2: inside and external genitalia. Right. And so, you know, if you've ever... Hopped up on that table and they said, okay, I'm just looking and touching for a second. That, that's one of the things we're looking and touching for is we're making sure that we don't see any kind of suspicious lesion or anything like that on the outside. And then actually when we look on the inside, um, seeing if you know there's any kind of lesions or discolorations to the vaginal wall. So a second um, Leanne's statement that just because you've had a hysterectomy does not mean you stop going to the gynecologist. And having your stuff looked at, right? It should
3: be part of your healthcare routine forever.
2: Yeah. As long as you have a vagina. As long as you have a <laughs> vagina, you should be going to the gynecologist. And, you know, um, that pap smear. You mentioned that the time between pap smears has been expanded. You know, I know when I was a, a younger lady, you, you got one every year um, and we started early, early, right? Like when we mm-hmm. started at 18 or, or when... three years after the onset of sexual mm-hmm. um contact. Um, Now, what are the guidelines for pap smears? So now the
3: guidelines are we start at 21 and depending, so you know, it depends on your age group um, every three to five years. And the reason that we've extended this is because a lot of times cervical cancer or HPV can clear itself. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing biopsies that weren't necessary and then causing cervical insufficiency that could affect subsequent pregnancies. So um, now we are a little... You know, we've spaced it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do have patients who still want their PAP every year despite having this mm-hmm. conversation. And um, some insurance companies are still covering mm-hmm. that. Um, and if not, the patients are, are more than healthy. Paying to self, for it out of pocket. Aid, yes. You know, whatever they they need for self. And, um, of, and of course, yeah. it's different if you've had, um, cerv- you know, cervical cancer. Right. We're, we're following more closely. Right. Right. And then so if you've had a hysterectomy, right, if you've had a hysterectomy, but you've had abnormal paps or if the reason for the hysterectomy was some type of cervical cancer, then you still get pap smears of the
2: vaginal vault, which is the inside of the vagina. Right. So you're just taking that sample Mm -hmm. that's scraping from Mm -hmm. the actual inside of the vagina to look there. So, you know, it's don't think if you've had a hysterectomy that you don't need to go anymore yes. so if it was for some type of abnormal you know uh, cervical cell type or a uterine cancer or something like that, then you still got to get the pap part. But regardless, you need the pelvic part, which brings us back to the reason we were here today, which was talking about ovarian cancer, Um, because just because um, the uterus may have been removed from a hysterectomy, if any of the fallopian tube or ovary was left, the potential for that to have a malignancy is still There, right? Yes, and I'm glad that you said the word fallopian tube. So,
3: uh, newer research has shown that most of these aggressive um, ovarian cancers originate in the fallopian tubes. Mm -hmm. So, um, what we are doing in current practice to help. decrease this risk is when women come in and talk to us about family planning and we talk about tubal ligation, which is where we tie the tubes or clip the tubes Mm -hmm. or burn the tubes. Um, Instead of offering that, we're having conversations with our patients about, um, it's called an opportunistic salpingectomy, which is where we remove the tubes. That's a mouthful. That is a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) But we remove the tubes and it decreases your risk of ovarian cancer later
2: on. And is good for family planning. Yeah, (laughs) Take those whole things out. There's nothing sneaking (laughs) through there. Nope. And, you know, so I mentioned earlier in the show that I had that that growth or that mass on my ovary. um, And when we went in to to take it out, I said, you just go on and take that tube, too. I don't need it. You know, and we took the we left the ovary on one side, but took the tube um, for that very reason. When we're in there, we might as well just decrease our risk even further by taking those things out um, there. So that that just shows you how science has improved, um, that we're now able to notice that. Um, a lot of those ovarian cancers are originating from fallopian tube tissue, um, migrating into that ovary. So it's great um, advance that we have there. All right, we've got another caller on the line. We're going to go to Mobile. Good morning, Rita. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? We're good. How are you?
0: Good. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. What can we help I, you with? I am one of the caregivers for um, my mother-in-law. Okay. Who who has dementia? Okay. And we are responsible for, you know, figuring out how to meet her healthcare needs. And I have never found any resources on um, how to address the gynecological needs of aging women as the uh, the healthcare or the for someone who has dementia. Right. And I was going to see if you guys had any suggestions for resources. Okay. Or people, uh, organizations that I might talk to who would help us make the best decisions um, for what my mother-in-law might need um, as she progresses in her um, disease.
2: Okay, um, how old is Mom?
0: She is eighty-four.
2: All right, there we go. What you got for us, Leah? Um, so at eighty-four, um,
3: and has she had um has she had a hysterectomy? No. Okay, um, so at that point, I would have a candid discussion with her healthcare provider and come up with a plan that works best for for her and for you guys Um, because sometimes we don't do certain screening things Mm -hmm. at 84. Um, You know, we just, it's kind of a risk versus benefit. And then it would depend, you know, on family history, how much she could tolerate, um, you know, as far as an exam goes. If it's going to cause more distress. Right, if if, if it causes more distress. Um, And then uh, sometimes with patients who have difficulty having exams, like we'll have patients with, um, you know severe autism or things of that nature if they're having another procedure done sometimes that's an opportunity for us to do an exam or or do whatever we need to do but at that point you just need to rate weigh, weigh the risk versus benefits for you know further distressing
2: her versus right. you know missing you know right and then right. kind of my flip on that is if you have access to a geriatric medicine specialist um, which I don't know what what you guys have in Mobile we have that department here at UMC we have geriatric medicine and that's what they're trained for is for okay. helping you know see patients who are aging but that also have um, more comp- complex issues going on maybe such as dementia things like that um, to really decide uh, to help you decide on that risk um, benefit ratio there um, right. so if you don't have access to that you know I'm sure we're Happy to take those patients at UMC. Um, you just go to umc.edu and take a take a look around and find the geriatric department there.
1: Okay,
0: perfect. Thank you for um, sending me in that direction and giving me um, uh, a little bit to kind of ease my mind about some of it, even.
2: Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for giving us a call today. Thank All you. Right, bye bye. Bye. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and take this last break of the hour. When we come back, we've got one caller on the line, but we've got some open ones as well. Now's the perfect time to give us a call. We're talking women's health and ovarian cancer today. Our number is one mpb ring It's one 672 We'll be back in just a few.
1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. Joining me today is Ali Ann Murray. We are both nurse practitioners, but from little different parts of the state. Leanne is joining us from Hancock Women's Center in Bay St. Louis, and we've been talking about ovarian cancer and women's health in general. Um, now is the time. If you have a question that's been kind of simmering away, um, this is uh, the last little segment of the show. So our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Or if you don't want to talk and you prefer a question answered offline, you can send me that at fit at MPB online org. All right, let's go talk to Peggy. Good morning, Peggy. Hello, how are you today? We're Hi, great. Peggy. What can we do for Thank you? Thank you. Well,
1: I had a hysterectomy in 2012 because of um, atypical cells from a pap. Okay. I had it done out of this country, uh, and I know they removed my ovaries also, Um. So would the fallopian tubes automatically be removed with the ovaries?
3: Yes. Yes.
1: Okay, good. I wanted to be sure of that. <laughs> and then uh, I got the next year they found breast cancer. So um, I think all of that, I, I'm just guessing now, was because of some HRT I had taken for about 12 years previous to that uh, for hot flashes. Mm, could be. And um, I still, even though that's, Out of my system now, and I'm six years over the breast cancer.
3: Congratulations, Um, Peggy!
1: Thank you. I'm uh, still suffering with hot flashes, Mm. really bad. So, if you got any. Remedies that
2: I
3: could take. I know a lot of progesterone stuff like that. I'm not allowed to take mm-hmm. anymore. So um, we use Lexapro a lot um, for women with menopausal signs and symptoms, including hot flashes. Um, I take that already. Oh, yeah. well, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do. I do. So um, that that's that's our our go to usually for people who can't tolerate um, who can't have hormone replacement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do they, does it get better? It hot should get, get better, better, yes. Okay. And how How far out are you? From my cancer? hmm uh, Six years. Six it
1: years. It was in May, but I'm 65 now. It looks like my hot
2: flashes are really going <laughs> You're going to have down.
1: them? And they are some better. They're some better.
2: Okay. Eesh. Yeah. Uh,
1: the night and during the day, several times, um, in and out of the jacket.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't I think I have a whole lot else to offer there okay. on that. Okay. Um, but you know, I'm I'm so pleased to hear that, you know, you've done other other than the hot flashes, done pretty well, um post post <laughs> yeah, diagnosis. Um and, yeah. and have kinda you got dealt a double whammy but have have, have beaten them. Have persevered. Yes. Oh, yes, I'm very, very
1: very thankful. Very blessed.
2: Yes, uh, just like you might have a little organic something like that. Uh, uh, yeah, I just haven't right. seen a whole lot of, of good with, you know, yeah. with supplements and different things like that. Um, they just haven't, haven't been the game changer that I was hoping that they would be for folks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's okay. One day it'll be gone. <laughs> yes. Okay, Peggy. All right. Thank you for giving us that call, Peggy. Oh, thank you. You're Bless welcome. Your um, which actually brings us to a great um, talk because she had two different types of gynecological cancer. So, one thing that went off in my head was maybe a genetic component, right? Which yes. I know you guys do some of this stuff at your clinic. So all of our patients, regardless of age what the
3: reason for the visit is, they get what we call the green sheet, uh, very technical. <laughs> and so it assesses your family risk of different types of cancers, including breast, ovarian, pancreatic, and colon. Um, and then it asks about age, is that diagnosis, um, how many family members, and so on. After you circle a yes to any one of those, then we have a conversation about possibly screening you for um, a genetic cancer syndrome. So there are several cancer syndromes that have been associated with ovarian, um, BRCA1, BRCA2, Lynch syndrome, and there's two other um, genetic mutations that are also associated with it. There's multiple other ones, mm-hmm. but the most common ones. Um, and so if you were to be positive for those, then we definitely change the way we uh, screen you for, you know, breast cancer, ovarian cancer and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it would impact your family like we were talking about this ripple effect earlier. Uh, it would impact, you know, siblings and daughters and sons and everybody else that would need to be tested for these
2: genetic cancer mm-hmm. syndromes. Yeah. And and I noticed at my um, GYN, they have a couple of questions mm-hmm. on kind of the yearly form that we fill out. And if you answer yes to any of those, then, then you too get this yes. screening, um, this genetic screening there. And so I have a couple of family members who had kind of premenopausal breast cancer. And so I got my genetic screening and it was... Um, it was fine, uh, but it was stressful waiting yes, on those results that's to very, come it's back. It's a very long wait for our patients yeah. Who, yeah. Um,
3: who who are waiting for these results. Um, and then, you know, other risk factors for ovarian cancer, unfortunately, they're not modifiable. It's right. not like, you know, with diet like, and exercise right, and or stop smoking or right. things like that. It's, right. you know, increased age and then never having children. um, um uh, being overweight, it's, it's that, one we that, can that, that one we can modify. That one we can modify. We can yeah. modify that. Yeah, yeah. That one you can come see we, me in lifestyle, and we can work on, <laughs> can on those kinds of things. That, but, yeah. um, and then some protective factors like we talked about, like a salpingectomy, having those tubes removed, a hysterectomy, um, breastfeeding for over a year is protective. Uh, multiple pregnancies, pregnancies before thirty-five, all protective factors for ovarian cancer yep
2: and so I've, I've got a pretty good number of those so I'm feeling pretty <laughs> good about myself there Now we did have a caller who had to go but his question was a, a, a pregnancy related question as well as sexual intercourse so is there a point in time where you should stop having sexual intercourse when when your partner is pregnant Unless you're high risk and
3: the doctor specifically tells you to not have intercourse, it's fine to have intercourse until baby makes their grand appearance into the world. So unless, of course, you're, you know, your water's broken Right, or if your water's like broken,
2: that. now is not, now is not, not the sexy time. time, right?
3: But up until that point or until baby comes, unless you're a high risk, right. there are certain conditions in which um, intercourse is contraindicated during pregnancy, um, but in a
2: regular low-risk pregnancy. Right. And yeah. the reason we don't want you having intercourse after the water is broken is because when we say water broken, your baby's been floating in this sack of amniotic fluid that's protective. Um, if the water is broken then that sack has kind of popped open a little bit and the fluid is leaking out, and now that's also a, a conduit between the external environment and the baby. Yes. So we don't want to introduce anything that could have... Um, an infection any kind of bacteria anything directly into that vaginal canal that could then communicate with baby's little pool that he's floating in and give both mom or baby an infection that would be difficult that's that's hard for them to treat um and then you know high risk pregnancies people that are on pelvic rest or Mm -hmm. um are on bed rest maybe they're having preterm contractions and things like that we don't want to be be shaking it up in there. I'm going to be stirring anything up. <laughs> I'm going to be, be chill. All right. Wow. That air, hour went by fast. Um, if you did not get your question in, you can email me at fit at mpbonline.org and I'm happy to answer your question that way. I'd like to thank my guest, Lee Ann Murray, for driving up all the way from Bay St. Louis this morning and joining me on the radio. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Thank learning you for having you me. It was Absolutely. Fun. So we'll have you back in the future as well. Um, I want to thank our awesome producer, Kevin Farrell, and our listeners and our callers for making this show great. Remember to tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio.